Our parasha discusses the possibility of a Jewish person who has fallen in hard times and lands up in such a bad state that they actually sell themselves to a non-Jewish person. And then there's a mitzvah for their family to redeem them. And we're going to analyze that mitzvah and in doing so, we'll learn about what it means for a person to fall spiritually and how, as bad as it is, we can never fall completely. If a Jewish person had sold themselves to a non-Jewish person as a slave, as described in our parasha. So at the Pasuk, the Torah says, we've got to jump in immediately. Somebody's got to help him to be redeemed. It's the responsibility of one of his family, his brothers, to redeem him. Or his uncle, or his cousin should redeem him. In other words, ransom him out. Or anybody else from the family. Or maybe the guy will come into some money and he'll be in a position that he could redeem himself. It's an interesting order of how these things are presented. From the Seder and Pasuk, the order of how the Pasuk introduces Echad Me'echov Goimer, one of his brothers, Doida Ben Doida, his uncle or cousin, Goimer, Meshep Sora Goimer, and then the rest of his family. Lent men up. So from this, the Torah teaches us that the, uh, as that the closer a person is in terms of their relationship to this captive, they have the first responsibility to redeem him. The korivos is nanter is a freer to girls and a mevet. Okay, so it's quite logical. Whoever is the closest relative, they carry the greatest responsibility to to help him to to free him. In that case, we have to ask two questions. Because two people seem to be, well, one person seems to be missing from the list and one person seems to be in the wrong place if we're going in order of how close the individual is. Allah, first of all, the pastor concludes that if the person sold as a slave now lands up in a situation where he can actually afford to buy himself out, surely logic says he would be the very first person who has the responsibility to free himself. Considering that the Pasuk does list the relatives in order of closeness, surely the logic should have been that the first person on the list is the person themselves. If the person has the finances, they should redeem themselves. If not, we start looking at the family. Only if he cannot afford, then you start spreading out brothers, uncles, cousins, etc. So what's the logic to say that the person taking responsibility for his own redemption is the last on the list where actually he's the person who is closest to himself? It's question one. Question two. Seeing as the Pasuk lists by name so many different relatives, when in a specific order from the closest to the more distant relatives, who's missing? It should have mentioned the person's father. Surely that is his closest relative who would want to help him. A person's father is a closer relative even than their brothers. How do we know that? As we know in the laws of inheritance, that a father is a first heir before brothers. So how come it is that the Pasuk not only doesn't put the father first, doesn't put the father on the list at all? How does that work? Now, this is a question that appears elsewhere. We're going to try to compare the two cases and see that they're not exactly comparable. Similar question is raised in the laws of inheritance. There also, the Pasuk gives us the order of who is the closest, so to speak, in, in order of inheritance. 
And it says, the Pesach says as follows, if a person passes away, your vein ain't low and doesn't have a son, because obviously the son is the first heir. Then, then the next order, the hierarchy is, next in line is the daughter, then his brother, his father's brothers, and then other close relatives. On last day, the Torah doesn't mention his father, which we know actually takes precedence even over his brothers. Why not? So the, offer, the, the answer that is offered uh, in the Ramban and others, as that the Torah prefers to speak about something that is a brocha, rather than a person who would die prematurely. So in other words, if a person's father is still alive to inherit them, that implies that they di- died at an early age. The Torah prefers not to talk about it. If the Torah would avoid, says the Ramban, a misfortune where a person, God forbid, loses a child. So that explains why the father doesn't uh, appear on the list in inheritance. But that's not going to answer for our scenario. Let's be honest. The truth is that's a beautiful explanation, but still not absolutely clear. We're talking about law over here. And when you deal with law, sentiment can't get in the way. doesn't make sense that you overlook the father's role in halacha, in the halachas of inheritance, just because you don't want to speak about something negative. Especially because you could now misunderstand the Pasuk and think that a father is not part of the inheritance hierarchy. But besides that, in our scenario, we're not talking about including the father in the story and then that is a misfortune situation. It's not. So the Pasuk should have said, and it should have been the first thing on the list, that the father has the first responsibility to step in and help his son who's been sold as a slave. Where is the father? So so in order to understand this, let's have a look at something else that the Chazal tell us. Again, um, in, in the various Meforshim, it's brought in the Gemara Kiddushin. Uh, Rashi talks about it. As the parashas from the seder kumen al haseder, that this parsha behar tells us a whole lot of scenarios that follow in a particular order, and it's actually the, the order of a person deteriorating in terms of their status. Bahari is very much about the halachas of Shemitah. And basically what's telling us is that there's a whole series of things, misfortunes that could befall a person, a whole lot of decline that a person could experience if they ignore the halachas of Shemitah, even the avak Shemitah, the things that are kind of secondary to the halachas of Shemitah themselves. What are these uh, deteriorations? Fear is a The first thing is that the person will end up selling his assets. And then there's one after the next the forms of deterioration. Until the person hits rock bottom, as that God forbid he sells himself to a non-Jewish person. And not just any non-Jewish person, the Pasuk there concludes that he even sells himself to the idol of the non-Jewish person. He actually sells himself into the idolatrous world. That he's going to become like a, a, a custodian or a, 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 an attendant, a, a, an assistant to the world of idolatry. Now, how bad could, could, could that get for, for a Jewish person? You can well understand that the Torah is not only describing a physical, a physical decline. A person's in dire financial straits and therefore lands up in a mess. 
As a most fakoifen alazani lechosim chulet that he ends up having to sell his assets, bis fakoifen zechalein, and then worse than that, selling himself. And not only is he selling himself, he's selling himself to a non-Jewish person. Look how desperate he must be. But it's equally describing for us a person who is unraveling spiritually. It's not just about the fact that he doesn't have money. Because the thought of a Jewish person being willing to sell himself to a non-Jewish person in, the, in those days, a pagan, an idolater, is just number one, it's completely contrary to the values of Torah. It's not allowed in the Torah. As Rashi describes, once the person is in that headspace where they sell themselves to a non-Jewish person, it infects their thinking and they start to believe that their own morality can be compromised. If my master is promiscuous, maybe I could do the same. He serves idols. He desecrates Shabbos. That he could think, you know, the person could think, well, now I'm, I'm in his jurisdiction and I should live like him. That tells you that this person has unraveled spiritually. And can you imagine how badly the person has spiritually declined if they're willing to sell themselves to avoid the Zara? That's the exact opposite of the principle that says we are servants of Hashem, not of anybody else. Well, yes, somebody who's serving not only somebody else, but the opposite. So the question is, how does this happen to a person? How can a Jewish person collapse spiritually to that extent to the point that he's actually open to the possibility of selling himself to Avoy Dazar? Where does that even come from? So, you know, where it starts. The beginning of this decline was that the person forgot that the Ebesh is our father. And if a person forgets that Ebishter is our father, or you forget about our father, well then naturally the person is going to lose their love of Hashem and their respect and awe for Hashem. Like the Pasuk says, the rebuke of the Jewish people, a child honors a father. Says, if I'm your father, where is my respect? Where is my honor? Of to put it into Hasidus language, it means that he has a person who has lost touch with the Av, the father dimension of their own makeup, which is the insight of true wisdom that exists inside the Neshama. So the father is missing from the list because the father is missing from the person's reality. Like the Altarebbe explains in Tanya. That there's only one reason why a Jew could ever transgress what they wish to once. It's because the Chochmah dimension of that person's soul, which is the that is the precipitator of faith in Hashem, that is super rational faith, is is unconscious. It's asleep. And therefore, says the Alter Rebbe, the person is completely desensitized to the reality that any and every Avera that the person does, even if it's something really minor, will create a complete clean break between that person and Hashem. The person, the person doesn't feel it, so that's why they're doing the Averas. 
Wollt hätte er Herz, hätte der Person been sensitive, als durch der Avera wird man nicht von ihr gute Wacht, dass sie es borrach, that every little Avera drives a wedge between us and Hashem and the oneness of Hashem, punkt wie durch Avera Zara, in exactly the same way, perhaps on a smaller scale, as Avera Zara does, says Altareba, wollt er beigestanden, denn ich soll mit selben Teukev, then the person would have been able to withstand the temptation of this little Averala with the same strength and commitment that he himself or any other Jew for that matter, even the simplest Jew and even the most rebellious Jew, would be willing to literally sacrifice their life to sanctify Hashem's name if faced with idolatry without thinking about it without knowing without contemplating on it it would just be clear this is something I cannot do it's impossible I cannot reject Hashem so what's the problem why does a person do an Avera because we're tone deaf we, we don't feel or, or sense that that degree of connection to Hashem or potential loss of that connection through behavior. That's why the father is not mentioned. Now we're looking from a spiritual angle. Why the father is not mentioned as one of the people who should redeem him and why the father is not in the world of inheritance. Because death, which of course is related to inheritance, also has a spiritual side to it. There's a, something called a spiritual death. As the Gemara says, that when a person is a really spiritually undone person, they are considered dead. Or you could even say in the most subtle way, any time that a person declines in their spiritual level, that's considered death. Death is the direct result, spiritual death, is the direct result of forgetting about the Ebeshter on high. It's a person who has lost touch with the Chochmah dimension of their own soul. Chochmah is Ma, it's, it's the capacity for surrender to Hashem, it's the awareness of things that are beyond what we can understand. It's a sleep. We know that sleep is a fraction of the experience of death. When a person is conscious of the Ebeshter, then the person honors Hashem. When a person feels the experience of the Chochmah dimension of their soul, Chochmah brings a person to life. That means that their Judaism is dynamic, their commitment is vibrant. There's no possibility of spiritual decline and death. You can't even drop a level because you're so empowered and enthusiastic about your, God, your, your connection to Hashem. When a person is driven with the Chochmah dimension of their soul, their commitment to Hashem is based on Emunah. It's unwavering. It doesn't shift. So if there's no father, then we start to talk about well, what happens next, inheritance, how does this person get themselves out of jail? If there was a father, none of that would have happened in the first place, therefore the father's not in the list. Now, now that we have identified that in order to be sold to a non-Jewish person, that indicates that somebody is not just financially destitute, but they are spiritually um, bankrupt. 
Es verständlich, dass es ein Geula So, obviously, there's a spiritual dimension then to the redemption, to the ransoming of this person. Was Teure sagt, dass Geula Tier Loi, the Teure tells us, the person must be redeemed. As eine Krim muss in im Geul sein, which means there's an imperative for the family to get involved, or anybody who's close to this person to get involved, help them out, rescue them. Und noch mehr, or even deeper than that, we can read the same line, that there's a promise, he will be redeemed. Even if the family does not get involved, there's a still, there's a, a, a safety uh, feature from the Torah, which is, when the Yovel year comes, he will go free. And the Pasuk sagt auf dem Tam, ki liebene soll avodai, avodim avodai heim, shtori koidem. And the Torah gives a reason for it, because the Ebrister says, they belong to me. My contract, my rights to the Jewish people precede the rights of this individual who happens to have them right now as a slave. So therefore, there will always be a way out. So there's two lessons over here. If a person's in a spiritually bad place, there's a responsibility of others to get involved and to assist them. And there's a guarantee that they'll come right. Let's understand that. We're obviously talking over here, not just about rescuing the person from the scenario that now they're working for this non-Jewish person. We're talking about rescuing the person from their own spiritual decline. What happened at the time of Matan Torah is that each of us was transformed into an, an everlasting or an eternal servant of Hashem. That's immutable, can't be changed. It is a core value of who we are. It's hardwired into our essence and no one can take it from us. Even if subsequently a Jewish person does contrary to what David wants. The fact that that Jewish person now has a connection to something which is completely toxic. They've been sold to Avoid Zorah. That is something that has been superimposed over the person's true essence, which doesn't change. The essence of who the Jew is, I am Hashem's servant, can never change. That's why we're so guaranteed that this person will be Redeemed at some point. And their myth, by the way, this also links the end of the parasha, which speaks about these halachas to the beginning of the parasha. Where the parasha began by saying, not only did David just speak to Moshe, as it says dozens of times in the Torah, but specifically that he spoke at Har Sinai. Telling us that this happened at Har Sinai is an introduction to everything that will be included within the parasha. It's a reminder of the fact that where do we originate? Where do we come from? We come from Har Sinai. That's where the Ebishter got in, so to speak, first and established an immutable contract with us that nobody can erase. We're the Ebishter's servants. So when you get to the end of the parish and you read the story of a person who is completely unraveled spiritually, we still have absolute confidence that this person will come right because he's been locked in already from Har Sinai. 
That will help us to understand the deeper perspective of what Rashi says. Rashi, especially the lengthy language that Rashi uses, where he says, when it speaks about the possibility of a Jewish person being sold not just to a non-Jew, but to Avoid Zorah, he says as follows. We're talking over here about a really radical scenario where the person is sold to an Avoid Zorah. Where he will have a role as a servant in that society or in that, that uh, place of worship. Rashi says clearly not to imagine that this Jewish person will now accept this idol as some kind of a deity. Rather he's going to chop wood or draw water or do some of the menial tasks that are associated with the running of their temple. At face value Rashi's comment doesn't seem to make sense. How does Rashi know this? How does Rashi know for sure that the Jewish person who's now been sold to work for the Avoid Zorah temple is not actually going to serve? If Rashi's motivation is because the Jews not allowed to do that. Well, just like you're not allowed to be sold as a server of Avoid Zorah, you're not allowed to be sold as an attendant who's working in the Avoid Zorah place. Now, Philip says, In fact, you're not allowed to be sold to a non Jew in the first place. So, how is Rashi so convinced that this person is not going to serve the, the idol? No, that's what Rashi wants to clarify, even when we're talking about such a Jew who's in such distress. Who has collapsed spiritually. To the extreme, God forbid. Rashi wants you to know that even the Jew who seems like they have totally lost touch with their Judaism cannot be sold to idolatry. It's not a decision. It's not because it's forbidden. It's because it's impossible. It's because a Jew can never belong to the world of Avodah Even before this Jew is rehabilitated. It's not possible to reach a point where he completely forgets that Debeshter exists and that Debeshter is his father. It's not obgetrogen and schlaft, it's just kind of distracted or sleeping. It's not that the dimension of Chochmah, absolute faith in Hashem, has been turned off in his soul. It's not asleep. It's not functional. On their far, and therefore it could be re-stimulated. If this same individual who seems to have absolutely nothing to do with their Judaism seems to care so little that they're willing to live in an environment of Avodah Zarah, that same person, when push comes to shove, and they're now up against the wall, and there's a challenge about their belief in Hashem's oneness, which is going to activate the deepest part of the Neshama, as we've described it, that's a wake-up call. That's going to arouse the Chachma within on the last Nita in Demni Soyen to ensure that he doesn't actually uh, you know, give in to this particular distraction. Not only that, the minute the person is conscious that this is a question of belief in Hashem, he won't even allow himself, or the Chochmah Sheba won't allow him 
to think, speak, or behave, even if he doesn't believe one word of it, in a way that would contradict Hashem. He's not going to bow, he's not going to say words, even though he says in my mind, I, be, I don't believe these words. The minute there's that clarity, this is contrary to my connection to Hashem and my belief in, in one God, forget about it, there's nothing to discuss. On the far. That's why Rashi is absolutely clear that a Jewish person can never be sold to the idol. Even just to go through the motions without any intention. The lowest ebb to which a Jewish person could decline when they are completely out of touch with their Chochmah Sheba Nefesh Basically, it's a bit disturbing, the, the Rebbe says in brackets of here, people can still make decisions that are radical decisions. Okay, Bechira, a person can do something which is even against their nature, even their core nature. But a person who's just kind of gotten, gotten sucked into a bad spiritual place cannot get any further than doing menial tasks for the Avodah Zarah. But to actually worship, even superficially, can't do that. Because this awareness, the Chochmah within, the, the uh, wisdom within, the Hemuna within, is asleep. Almost to the extent that it feels like it has no say, control, or input into the person. Instead, the person actually feels like they're beholden to a, a person, that individual. They have control over me. My own Hashama doesn't have control over me. In, 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 so if a person is so stuck that they really believe that they are beholden to somebody else's reality, a non-Jewish reality, and they don't feel their own Hashama speaking to them, then they actually can't help themselves. With the klal, like we know, the axiom says, in Chovesh Matarat Asurim, the prisoner can never release himself from the prison. Someone or something else has to inspire this person to wake them up, to be able to help them out. It needs to be somebody who is beyond the problems they're facing, somebody who doesn't have the same challenges. That's what the Torah is describing. Other people who are not slaves, like he is, they're the ones who have the possibility of ransoming and rescuing him. And that's why the first thing the Torah says is, bring in the family. Because they are going to be people, obviously, who care about him, and they're people who are not stuck in his situation, and they are the ones who have to get involved, and they have to try and inspire him, and elevate him out of his situation. The Tachlis is over, but the ultimate goal would be, We don't want a person who's going to consistently need to be ransomed. That's useless, then, then we haven't really helped him. We've, you know, if we consistently run to save him, we haven't really helped him. Not to megale zayn, zayn primios. What we really want to do is to get in touch with his primios. Help him find himself. Don't be the rescuer who's, uh, you know, I'll always inspire you. Help the person to inspire himself. Help the person to recognize you are fundamentally Hashem's servant. 
was doch dem ist ein Gülen an Eifen, als er mit Sadatzma Yishen mehr nicht schaich zu Azayirida. Wenn you've shifted the person exponentially, then the person is no longer in a situation where they need help, the person is now protected. They can't land up in such a mess ever again. And this is exactly in the same way as it would be physically. As we well know, the very best assistance you can give to a person who is destitute is not to pay him money, but to teach him to fish, to give him an opportunity so that he can be on his own two feet so he never requires the help again. It's exactly the same spiritually. It's very tempting to be the inspirer, the rabbi, the person who has such an influence. But the goal is actually to turn the person into a self-sufficient Jew. Now we can understand from a spiritual perspective why the last person on the list is the person themselves being in a position to free themselves. Why is it last on the list? Because that's the objective. is getting the family or whoever is close to this person involved to rescue him from his situation, the goal and purpose of that is to put this person into a position that going forward, he can help himself and he doesn't need us to come rushing and remind him and inspire him for bring with him. He can help himself. On my high time is the Seder from Gulas Kravim and Anofim from Akarov, Karov Koidem. And that actually also explains why, on the list of who should assist this person who's been sold to the non Jew, we start with whoever the closest relatives are first. Because we're looking for people who can wake him up from the inside and then let that inner connection to Hashem, which is immutable, translate into a more expressed, real application. Until we empower the person so much that he is self-sufficient. So therefore, whoever is closest to the person is moving as It's clear that the closer the relationship, the more deep the impact will be on this particular individual. So we want people who are close to him because that's what's going to really, really help him in the most meaningful way. How does a Jew land up in the space initially? How can he be exposed to such a decline and eventually, you know, even consider moving into the world of the non-Jews? Well, that's also alluded to right at the beginning of the Pasha when it says, We're talking about a, a time and a scenario where the Jewish people have entered Israel. They're no longer in the protection of the Midbar. Because the Jewish people are now going to settle in a regular land. Where in order to live, you have to follow the rules of nature. You have to work your field, etc. It's completely different to how it was in the desert, where they were completely removed from the, spirit, the, the physical experience. The food, heavenly food. You don't have to work for it. Water, on tap. The well of Miriam. There was a complete laundry service built into the clouds that accompanied them in the desert and you never had to buy new clothing because they were always refreshed and they grew with the person as they grew. So now you're moving away from this protected environment into a regular place. Now the person is exposed because they're so invested in the physical world that could cause spiritual decline. 
Therefore, the Torah immediately addresses this issue at the beginning of the parasha and says, Remember who you are. You're not an ordinary person living in an ordinary land. You're a unique human being who stood at Har Sinai and was empowered in a unique way. And therefore, you can be absolutely sure. Not only can we preserve ourselves and our own spirituality, we can be redeemed. We can actually change the land itself, the physical landscape, the physical reality. We could take Eretz Canaan, the most promiscuous place on earth, with such aggressive uh, nations living in it, to become Eretz Yisrael, a holy land. Not just Eretz Yisrael, but a place of Shemitah, meaning a place that is completely dedicated to Hashem at the level of Shabbos. So what we're going to do as Jewish people is transform the reality, a land that used to be idolatrous. Where you even have the danger that a Jew could get sucked into that and become sold to Avodah Zorah. Now we're going to reword or, or read, uh, uh, redefine the words in the Pasuk that say which ostensibly is referring to Avodah Zarah. So Tosa says, because we know it's eventually going to be uprooted. We know it's eventually going to be destroyed. The objective is to completely eradicate the possibility of considering other beings as powerful and certainly as worth worshipping. Instead, we will inform the reality that the land becomes a place of Shabbos, of dedication to Hashem. And we can see clearly that it is Hashem's land, which uh, Hashem will have the opportunity to fulfill very, very soon with Mashiach.